0: In this Ask Jazz episode, we had a dental student called Mohammed from Oklahoma in the USA asking me some really great questions around occlusion. We covered things like when and why should you use a Facebook? What is the relevance of centric relation to our daily dentistry? And how can we become better conformers to our patients' occlusions? The episode itself will be featuring on the Very Dental Student podcast. So it's great to be on there, but I thought, why not take this opportunity to share it with you guys to Patrusharati, and especially some of the, the younger dentists and the students coming through who also have these same burning questions so that we can all benefit. Now, as you'll see from this episode, we could have gone and on and on and on answering all these questions. And we kind of ran out of time. So there may be a part two. But if you have any burning questions for an Ask Jazz episode or occlusion in general, then do type it in the comments. And we'll make sure that if we film a part two that we cover those questions. Now before we join the main episode, uh, I've had some really great news actually uh, on Instagram course karma our good friends at course karma. They've just messaged me saying congratulations your podcast has been voted a top podcast of 2023. So for anyone who voted, even though I didn't ask you even though I never emailed you to ask you, I really, really appreciate the fact that you went on you saw the podcast and you clicked on it, and you voted for protrusion Dental Podcast as your favorite dental podcast that honestly means so much to me and it keeps me going. So thank you. Everyone everyone for your support. Thank you for the subscribers who keep coming back. And I'm only just getting started. I've got great, great plans for next year to be more inclusive for all dentists and dental students all around the world and to continue to make dentistry tangible. Oh, and one more thing, those who watch the podcast and not listen to it, you know that we have premium notes on the screen. Now, usually about halfway uh, on YouTube, especially so it's a free platform, we cover those notes with ads, because we reserve the premium notes for our paying members on Protrusive.app. Now, because this episode is for students primarily, we're going to give all our premium notes away for free. So the premium notes are there on the screen. And also you'll get the PDF summary, the premium notes and the transcription. And I usually have this in a hidden place for paying members. But I'll put this on the main website, which is protrusive.co.uk. And I'll link it in the show notes below. And I am working on something for students like a student scholarship. So all students all students around the world can get a bit more access to the paying stuff that that general dentists pay for access. And and that's how they support the podcast. I'm ever so grateful. But I kind of want to do something for students. So keep your eyes peeled for that. You know, there could be something coming mm, in a couple of months, which I'm not going to reveal so much but something just to help access
1: for students.
0: So watch this space. Thank you so much once again, and let's join the main episode.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Very Dental Student Podcast. I'm your host, Mohamed Abubasha I am very excited to announce my co-host. Today, I have Dr. Jaz Gulati joining me from the Protrusive Dental Podcast, and we're doing a bit of a simulcast today. For those of you who don't know me listening from Protrusive Dental Podcast, I am a protrusorati, and I am also the host of the Very Dental Student segment of uh, the Very Dental Student Podcast, so it's a new segment we're uh, doing mostly topics that would be interesting for dental students but also topics that would be interesting for young dentists as well so yeah, and Jez, if you would like to introduce yourself to my listeners who maybe don't know who you are.
0: Oh, man, thanks so much for introducing me. Thanks so much for having me on. It's, it's great to speak to students. We're a perpetual students of, of, of life in every way. So it's, it's nice to be here. Uh, I'm a general dentist based in Reading, UK, and I'm a, a bit of a geek, right? I, I I did so much like extra CE in my first five years out of dental school and I just the, the learning never stops. And then I started to, to share a little bit and the podcast was born. And, and now I get to have conversations with people just like you and, and, dentists all over the world to help you know elevate everyone's game so that's kind of areas that I've grown an interest in in my own clinical field uh, is things like occlusion and TMD and that kind of stuff which is uh, such a it is a complex topic it's a complex topic it's a scary topic initially and I guess it kind of attracted me this like dark art it attracted me towards it so uh, that's me in a nutshell and the host of Protrusive Dental Podcast thanks for mentioning it but yeah great to be on the the, the very dental student podcast.
1: Absolutely so uh, one thing that I will just plug the the Protrusive Dental Podcast is he it does a really good job of making really complex clinical topics more tangible for the novice listener. And that's something that I've really appreciated. Um, there's very few podcasts that I, that I really have been able to extract as much clinical wisdom from as the Protrusive Dental Podcast. So as he kind of alluded to, he's a bit of an occlusion guru uh specifically which i thought it would be appropriate i wouldn't call it a guru honestly
0: <laughs> uh, honestly we're not a guru let's not go there it, it's just a geek right i'm just yeah. uh, okay. uh I, I, just just an inclusion geek right and, and even then like one thing we'll get onto is i I couldn't care less about the Bennett shift right I couldn't care less about various other factors that you read in textbook i'm I'm more about the real world occlusion which is why I love the the kind of questions that we discussed beforehand I, I love the themes that you're going in because that that is the real world right the, the textbook stuff sometimes gets a little bit too heavy, and that's why some people get a little bit you know put off, they, they take a step away from occlusions that like, you know, this is a, b- a bunch of mumbo jumbo. So I, I like the real world stuff, which is why I like uh, some of the topics that you chose, actually,
1: I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's actually how I was going to start was mentioning that sometimes in school when we discuss occlusion, and we discuss all other, you know, like operative and fixed and stuff, it's almost like they just discuss them separately, because even the faculty don't really know how to really tie them in together. So hopefully we'll be able to get into some nitty gritty. And I'll go ahead and start with uh, our first question is just like what is what is one of the most basic things we should avoid when doing single tooth to quadrant dentistry, which is what most new grads or or student dentists will be doing?
0: Absolutely. Now, I I would say that uh, even Once you qualify, it takes years to get up to if you want to, should you choose to, to try and do more full mouth stuff. Some people are completely happy to do, you know, conformative dentistry. That's the key word there, because when you're doing single tooth dentistry, when you're doing quadrant dentistry, you are conforming. So let's just take a a step back. What is conforming, right? Conforming is the patient's bite is pretty much working for them they're biting together and they got maybe enough teeth so that they hit together at the same place every time. And it's fairly reproducible for this patient. And you want to go in and you want to do your work and you want to make sure the patient leaves fairly similar, if not identical to, to how they were before. If, if that's appropriate for the patient, because you've treated the disease, let's say treat the caries, and you put them back together how you found them. I liken it to when you're a kid, and you want to have a, a cookie from the cookie jar, but you, you don't want your parents to know. So you're gonna slowly creep up, you're gonna get, grab that cookie. Uh, and then you're gonna, you know, it's like a uh, you're, you're, you're hiding your tracks, you're making sure there's no crumbs left behind you, you're closing that lid exactly how it was in the exact position. And we should be treating our patients the same way. Because the best kind of dentistry is when the patient has to do the least amount of adaptation possible. So what we do, or what I did, certainly I know lots of colleagues do is when we're at dental school and beyond, you do your restoration, you check the occlusion, you see the dots, you start grinding away the dots, you check again, you see the dots, you start grinding away the dots, you check again, oh, there's no more dots. And again, and, okay, that's done. How does it feel? And the patient says, "Oh yeah, it feels great. Feels like you've hardly done anything at all." Right? And then and then you move on. And so, is that a mistake in a way? Well, yes, yeah, it's, it's an easy thing to do, right? The whole "plant it low and let it grow." Have you heard of that one, Mohammed?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have heard that. And
0: yeah. I, I don't know if you're, you if you if you're also guilty of this as, as as I was for many years. And and sometimes accidentally you become guilty of it. But it's something that we we kind of just did. And so the big mistake there is have you actually truly conformed if before the tooth was, you know, functioning and was in the occlusion and now you've done a restoration. Now it's no longer really in the occlusion. You you haven't really conformed. Uh, And I think all of that begins firstly, going back to your main question, the biggest mistakes is do we actually check the occlusion before we actually, you know, pick up the handpiece. It took me years before I actually would actually make a, a, a note of it. So it would be before, none of the stuff would be out on my bracket table, there would be no articulating paper, there'd be no stock foil, we'll talk about that. And so you just go on in, you numb the patient up and you start drilling, okay. Uh, and, and then only at the end, when you're checking with the artic paper, you're thinking, oh, hang on a minute, what was the occlusion like before? Is, it, is this how it's supposed to be? And so it all begins with, are you actually checking the occlusion to begin with? And so if I was to say the basic things we need to do is if we're treating an upper first molar, for example, is the tooth behind, if, assuming they have one, holding shim? So shim stock, do you, do you use shim stock, Mohammed? Do you have that?
1: I've never used shim stock. I don't even know what it is, to be honest. I, I know articulating paper, that's all.
0: <laughs> so it's okay let's talk about that how much do you know and not to put you on the spot but you know it's co- totally cool if you don't know because i was the same as you right like if, when i was at your stage two years in dental school i had no idea about that the, the, there's wait, there's different types of papers beyond color kind of thing you know mm-hmm. so all of that was like a, a, a brand new thing so do you know how thick the paper is that no, you use no idea <laughs> exactly and, and so, and so you know, i was the same right and so we're using it so someone might be using 200 micron paper right? And then someone might be using 20 microns. So I use like 22 micron, 21 micron, right? And so why is that relevant? Well, if you use the 200 micron, it makes a big splodge on the tooth, it makes a big mark. And if you use a smaller paper, thinner paper, it's going to make a smaller mark. And so what you get with the thicker paper is false positives. You think the tooth is an inclusion in that area, but actually it's not. So, so it goes down to the, the, the basic things. Like that. And the reason I mentioned shim is shim is this foil. It's articulating foil. It's not paper, it's foil. It doesn't leave a mark on the tooth. But what it is is eight microns, right? Which is like super thin. And so sometimes teeth look like they're in occlusion, but when you put the shim through, it's not holding shim. We call it a shim hold. And therefore, we know that actually this tooth isn't truly in occlusion. So uh, this is relevant because if we're treating that, upper first molar, basic occlusal restoration, right? Simple thing, right? But if you check the tooth be- behind, which is the, the second molar, bite together, it's holding shim, you know, you're trying to pull the shim out, it's, it's not pulling out because now the tooth, we know the tooth is inclusion. occlusion. We check the tooth in front. Is the premolar holding shim? It is. Okay, great. And so what you want at the end is once you've done your restoration, you're checking the occlusion. The first thing to check is, okay, are the tooth behind and in front, are they still holding shim? Because if they're no longer holding shim, you know by definition your restoration is proud, right? Mm-hmm. And so you you work with that, and at the end you want to basically make sure you're holding shim as it was before, and then on the tooth that you're working on itself, you look at the dots and you want to see okay, is the dot in an appropriate place? Is it on a, a cuspal or incline, or was it there already? And so there's there's so many different things that we need to do, but it all begins with actually checking the occlusion before you started. And the best way that I found Mohammed in, in practice is an intraoral camera. You know, I check with the shim, I check with the color paper, bite together, I see where the dots are, I'll take a quick photo with my intraoral camera. And then when I've done my restoration, I check the dots again, I, I look at the before photo and look at the after photo. And I think, okay, Is there a dot firstly? It'd be nice if there is a dot. If there was a dot before, I'd like there to be a dot again. And is it roughly in the same position? What we don't want is like the dot to now be on the interface where that composite touches the enamel, right? Because that's where all the load is going through. It's like harmful forces going down that interface, which is the weakest area. So little things like that, that we need to assess before and then check again after.
1: That makes a ton of sense. One thing that I uh, kind of wanted to follow up with in terms of the dots when you're checking the art- with the articulation paper. One faculty has kind of told me, like, you want it on functional cusp tips and you want it on, like, fossa. And otherwise you don't want it to be hitting anywhere. Is that, is it, can it really be that simple or is it kind of more nuanced than that?
0: So th- this is very similar to another question, which is, when you, when you, when you do you use rubber dam, Mohamed? For your, yeah, I mean, we, restoration. so
1: I haven't started uh, treating patients clinically yet. But in the sim clinic we do. Yeah,
0: okay, fine. So w- w- when you get to it uh, in the future as well, you know, the, the the joke is you take away the rubber dam, you check the occlusion, you grind it away. And now all that beautiful anatomy that you labored over is now is now gone. It looks like a very flat restoration. And so mm-hmm. people say, you know, should my composite sculpting, should it resemble the textbook, you know, for a first molar it should have three buckle casts and two lingual all that kind of stuff? Should it look like that? Well kind of you we use that as an inspiration but really it depends on A what the tooth looked like before you started and B what's opposing it because if what's opposing it is completely flat then good luck trying to give this, you know, bulbous, extravagant anatomy. It's just not going to match, right? It's not going to match the patient's existing dentition. So the reason that's similar to, to the question you ask is, well, if you, if in an ideal world, an ideal world, yes, we want a functional cusp, for example, an upper premolar, the, the, the palatal tip, right, uh, up against the central fossa of, of, the, of the lower, for example, the marginal ridge of the lower. But yeah. it really depends on were the teeth actually in the correct place? Because a lot of people don't have that beautiful custer fossa relationship to begin with. You get the cards that you're dealt with and you work, you can try and conform to that existing inclusion. So if they started with an incline contact, meaning like, for example, that buckle incline, right? There's a dot on there. It's not on the tip. It's, it's on the incline. It's not in the fossa. It's like halfway between. And then you do your restoration. And then you can't now suddenly change the orientation of the opposing tooth to now meet it in the fossa you could try and maybe manipulate it a little bit to make you know meet a little bit closer to the fossa but you get the tooth positions that you have in front of you and you do the best you can with what's in front of you where your faculty is completely correct is when you are reorganizing when you've decided that the patient's seclusion is not working for them and we need to make a wide scale change for example opening the vertical dimension doing lots of restorations at that point we can then along with the technician decide that, okay, w- the previous occlusion wasn't working so great. What can we do now to minimize failure? How can we optimize the occlusal environment to make sure that everything works well? And to have that sort of to fossa relationship is a nice thing so that it avoids that inclined contact, which is, which, you know, an inclined contact gives a, a sideways force to a tooth. It causes flexure. So it's totally good to have that. But the rules of occlusion do not apply to dentate patients who've got MOD amalgams and the odd composite here, and you're conforming, you throw the textbook out. The textbook says that we got to work with what's in front of you. But when we are starting with a blank slate, then yes, that is very true. So we got to make a distinction of what we're what's in front of us.
1: Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, so in a lot of cases with single tooth dentistry, we really won't be able to produce ideal occlusal outcomes. Is that basically a good summary of that?
0: It, it, it is. And it's, it's a sad summary, isn't it? We learn all that occlusion and then like in the first patient you see and then you, yeah, you can't actually give the cuss fossa. But we try and optimize, we do what we can, like we, we conform, but conformative doesn't always have to mean that, you know, the broken down shape of the tooth that we're going to copy that exactly. We try and change and improve the shape while still making sure that when the patient bites together, it's comfortable right so there are some things that we can do so for example uh, if before there was a really harmful steep incline contact that we try and sort of shallow it out so that it's it, it's it's not as steep for example uh, it's very difficult to to explain without giving a very in you know, a concrete example or a photograph of it but well the the main thing is that Yes, you can only follow those principles when you've got like a beautiful wax up and try and do it, do it. But when you have a patient in front of you, you can't always achieve all those things. Like the textbook says that everyone should be in their, You know, I don't want to introduce this term too early, but, you know, in centric relation and and, and that kind of stuff. But, you know, only three percent of patients are in just you know, walking about their own centric relation. Everyone has a slide and stuff. So the, the rule book, it, it, it doesn't really apply to these dentate individuals. You have to uh, work with what you've got. You can optimize what you have, but you're not going to be able to achieve uh, like a checklist of occlusion on your dentate patients who are, otherwise you're doing conformative dentistry. You have to assess the occlusion before you start make a judgment call of where you're going to copy it exactly or copy it mostly, but maybe manicure the opposing tooth to remove that sharp cusp tip so it's nice and smooth. Mm. So that also moves the dots in a certain direction. So those are little things that you can do those little wins that you can get.
1: Yeah. And uh, I guess knowing the textbook principles will let us allow us to kind of decide where we're going to make those compromises and where we're going to make those judgment calls as well. So one thing that I'm I'm glad you brought up was centric relationships relation. You know, so in our occlusion curriculum, we had to memorize like the seven bullet point definition of centric relation. And we had to practice taking face bow transfers as well. And honestly, I can tell you now that I have no idea what any of it meant, nor how to find out whether a patient's in centric or honestly, what do you like how to even know what the face transfer is doing for me. I know it gives us some a, a slightly better anatomical perception of where exactly the patient's occlusal plane is with relation with their TMJ. But other than that, I don't really know w- what is the reason why we take a Facebook transfer? When does that really come into play? Do I need to take one if I'm doing any crown and bridge work or is it usually? Yeah, just go ahead and, and run off with that, if you will.
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, great, great questions. And I I, mean, I remember being the same exact position. You, we were doing these centric relation bite records on each other right? And it was like I was in uh, um, third year of, of five in the UK. And I had no idea what we were doing once we did it. I didn't know why we were doing it. Because you're, you're so deep in conformative density when you're when you're starting out that this whole thing about shifting the jaw and finding this centric relation position is so fun. From, from what you're actually t- are doing on your patients. So it's it's a great opportunity to now, let's let's see if we can break this down. Let's make it tangible. So there's two ways we can go about this. We can talk about the Facebook first, but I think maybe beforehand, let, let's talk about centric relation. Okay. Centric relation does not apply to your daily dentistry. If you ask a general dentist, a general dentist, not a prosthodontist, if you ask a general dentist, what percentage of their patients are they actually recording centric relation? Working in centric relation, which is basically centric relation, if, if, if for those who don't know, is nothing to do with the teeth centric relation is not to do with the teeth It's to do with the condyle being in a snug position. I'm going to use my terms basically it's a snug position in the glenoid fossa Alright, it's anterior superior but it's just a nice snug position it's a bit like a ball in a cup the ball fits very nicely in this in this cup basically there's no other way it could be and so the, the condyle fits nice and snugly in in this in this matching sort of reciprocal fossa and there's a disc in between it whereas the the way the teeth meet together right precisely it's not necessarily where the condyle is snugly in the gland fossa, it might be that the condyle is slightly further forward. And therefore, the where the teeth meet together is called maximum intercuspal position. And the condyle had to come slightly forward, maybe, so that the teeth could meet together nicely. Because that's just the way the teeth erupted, right? Now, if we move the condyle in that, into that snug position again, the teeth are no longer in maximum intercostal position. And so when, I, when, when the condyle is moved, and we'll talk about how that can happen, is moved into that snug position, you will now be hitting on the centric relation contact point, or it's known as the recruited, you know, recruited contact position, RCP. So really, the, what, the question to ask is, what relevance does that position have to our daily bread and butter dentistry? It's very minimal right, very minimal because when you have a patient and you need to do two fillings on two premolars, okay, that position has nothing to do with what we're actually doing. How are we going to serve our patient and improve the dentistry if we're just trying to make sure that we can get get rid of the decay. Uh, get a nice seal, make sure we get a nice tight contact. And when the patient bites together, it feels comfortable and everything everywhere else is hitting at the same time. So the whole centric relation thing, it gets more into play when we are again, doing more comprehensive dentistry, we are reorganizing, we decide, we make a decision that the patient's occlusion is not working for them. And therefore, we need to start with a blank slate. And when we're starting with that blank slate, again, we go back to designing the cusp to foster relationship and in making everything perfect we can. And so the reason that central relation is a in many occlusal camps is a favoured position to start from is because it's reproducible, right? One well, great way Lincoln Harris explained it uh, is, is basically, uh, if, if if I have my arm my arm is out straight completely, right? That is a definite position, right? If you, if you tell me Jazz, put your arm out straight, every time I can go pretty much in the same position, right? But if I was to describe to you this angle that I'm making right now, just put my elbow in, right? Like if I do it 50 times, it might be slightly out every single time. But this position all the way extended, and this position all the way contracted are the two definites. So by having the, the condyle in beautifully in the fossa is a reproducible position, and we like reproducible because imagine now you have to fit 24 crowns at once and you fit 24 crowns at once. And then now you get the patient to bite together and random places are hitting. It's not quite where you wanted. So what can you do? You can manipulate the patient, put that condyle in the fossa, in centriplation and start from there. This is where I want it. This is my end goal. And so the reproducibility aspect of centric relation is restoratively convenient. And that's the main reason, right? It, it, a lot of people take it too seriously. That, oh, it's when the muscles are in, in a beautiful position. It's when patients will stop bruxing. I don't believe that. It's where they, they will be able to have a better sleep, blah, 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 blah. blah. It's not as powerful as the reproducibility element. So before we talk about Facebook stuff, does that make sense regarding centric relation and why actually we don't use it that much in general dentistry?
1: Yeah, it does make sense. So essentially you're saying that it's when we've already decided to rework the occlusion, that's whenever we need to understand centric relation as kind of like, this is, this is the position, the reproducible position where we're gonna build everything out in. Um, because you can't just pick an, a non-producible position because then when you go to the crown seats, whatever type of reconstruction you're doing, and then you're not getting the initial positions that you had had already taken because you took it in an unproducible um, manner. Is that is that kind of what a good that's a good way
0: to describe it? And also, have you started to uh, learn the theory of complete dentures? Is that something that you yeah. you're on to? Yeah. So yeah. W- which position have you been taught to use for uh, complete dentures in terms of which, which jaw position?
1: So uh, we've I think it's I, th- I believe it's centric. We've been talking about VDR minus three. As being a good VDO, like a a good video position. So that's the
0: vertical, uh, right? That's the yeah. the, 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 the vertical. Uh, but how far forward do you want your patient to bring their jaw? Do you want them like protruded, or do you want them to? You know, uh, what about in an the anterior posterior plane? Um, so, so, so this, yeah, this is where yeah. centralization comes into it. Because uh, let's say you come to the wax try and you got the teeth and you know in the wax. And the patient bites together and, and they're breaking off teeth everywhere. Well, actually, if you now just relax their jaw, and, and there's ways to do it and you, and you get that, you know, condyle back in the fossa again, in that snug reproducible position, you have somewhere to work with. Oh, yeah, this tooth just needs to I just need to melt this wax and get this up bite together. Ah, yes, now we're together. There was one tooth that was in the way, hence why I was breaking. So it gives you a, a reference point to work with basically. So we use it in complete dentures, because again, that's the, the, uh, the, the very first full mouth rehab, right? Uh, we use it when we're doing multiple restorations, we're to completely re- redesign everything. We use it in our stabilization splints. So it's very other uh, times we use it. But most of that dentistry for, for, for young dentists and dental students, the work we're doing mostly is conformative. Whatever the patient had in front of us, wherever the dots were, we're roughly conforming to that. We're not having to find out this slide and the slide is basically when the condyle is in that snug position, the fossa, certain teeth may touch, maybe one tooth will be touching basically. And then when they bite hard and they clench together and then all the teeth suddenly touch, that condyle had to come forward. One or both had to come a little bit forward, basically make that little adjustment and that adjustment is the slide basically but this slide only is relevant when we're doing more comprehensive dentistry. Does that help?
1: Yeah, it does. So do do we always have to like deprogram the patient in order to find out where their centric relation point is?
0: Really great question. And so there are two types of patients, okay, loosey-goosey and tighty-whitey, okay. okay. Loosey-goosey patients are the kind where there's this way of doing a centric relation whereby you uh, use a chin point lift. So you grab the chin and you just get it nice and loose and you know, just one thumb and one index finger on the chin and then you, you start Doing people and some people suddenly like you feel like a release, like you got full control of their mandible and you can, like, you know, hinge it. And these patients are loosey-goosey. And so that patient, they don't need much deprogramming. You can very easily get their condyle in that snug position. Other people, uh, and, and a lot of people actually uh, are tighty-whitey in a way that the, the position of the condyles is controlled by the lateral pterygoid muscles, right? Lateral pterygoid muscles are, are actually connecting onto the condyle and onto the disc as well. So if all of us, you and me, when we bite together, our teeth, they bite together in MIP consistently every time, right? It's not like we are knocking in to our centric relation contact point or RCP and then sliding to our MIP every single time we bite together. And we can thank our muscle engrams, the muscle memory in between, to, to the fact that we can bite into MIP every time, right? Yeah. That is what, what what helps us. Now, what we need to do to find the, the centric relation point or central relation in general, is how do we switch off those muscle engrams? How do we get those muscles to forget? How do we get that lateral pterygoid to let go? So only when that lateral pterygoid lets go, this is the condyle allowed to get snugly in the fossa? So then, for those patients, we need to do deprogramming. Now, you can do it with an occlusal appliance. You can do it with something called a leaf gauge. You can do it with something a Lucia jig. And there's loads of instruments you can do it. But essentially, a lot of patients will need it just a couple of minutes. Some patients may need to go home with an appliance for several weeks before we can get those muscles to forget how the teeth bite together. Because the muscles are very powerful, they'll remember. But once you get them to forget, then it's much easier to get that condyle in the fossa.
1: Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah, that's definitely cleared that up. But I do want to also. And the Facebook then? Yeah. Yeah, but what, to touch on the Facebook face as well.
0: Yeah. Okay, so 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 Facebook again was this weird thing that we did at dental school and it looked really funny and and one uh, tutor at dental school even joked that if you do it for your patients the patients will think wow, this is really fancy. It justifies the fees that I'm paying for the for the, for the work basically. <laughs> uh, and actually if we look at the evidence base behind uh, for facebows does the use of a facebow improve Or decrease how much adjusting you're doing when it comes to stabilization splints? No, it doesn't. Does it improve the occlusal accuracy and how much adjustments that you're doing or the the overall quality of complete dentures? No, it doesn't. So there's a lot to be said about, you know, when and why should we using it? So if we start off the very, very basics, what is the, What does it actually do? Right? So if you read the text textbook, it gets your maxilla, and it relates it to the terminal hinge axis. Now, what does that actually mean? Right? In the, in real terms? Well, mm-hmm. when you actually put a, a Facebook in, that's like a Dinar one, for example, uh, it's got a little fork, that fork attaches to the maxilla, not to the mandible right? That only is the maxilla. Therefore, what the lab get is the imprint of the upper teeth, the maxillary teeth. So we know that, okay, the face bow has something to do with the maxillary teeth. The other part of the face bow is usually going inside the ear. So it's now we're relating someone's maxilla to the ear. So why is that got to do anything? Well, your ear and the maxilla might be a slightly different position and orientation to mine. And when we send that to a technician, what, what will they do? Because the clue is here. Now, what, what's that, what, how are we using that information? And the technician will be m- using that Facebook transfer jig to mount the upper maxillary cast, the, mandib- the mandibular cast is not even in the equation yet, okay? That upper man- maxillary cast in the correct plane in the articulator, because the articulator has got this receiving area where the jig goes in. So that now the hope, and this is the main crux of it, the hope is where the maxilla is in the patient's mouth in relation to the the TMJ is kind of similar to where that mixed maxillary cast is to the pretend TMJ on the articulator, all with the hope that when we do the movements on the articulator, it will mimic or recreate our patient. Now fast forward, it, it doesn't, okay, but it's the best thing that we have at the moment, or well, it's not the best thing, there's other things out there, digital things, which are absolutely amazing. But the articulator for many years was the best thing that we had. And it's all to do with how can we reduce adjusting time? How can we make sure that when we send for a wax up, and the wax up comes back and you try it in the patient's mouth that it will be somewhat similar to what we attended on the articulator? How can we recreate the patient's head and jaw movements onto articulator. And so what the face bow does, it just gives you a little bit more precision and degree of confidence that the way that the articulator moves is a bit more similar than using a average value articulator without the face bow. So that's what the face bow does. And then of course, once the, the maxillary cast is in, in the correct plane on the articulator, which is similar to the patient's mouth, let's say, then the mandibular cast is related to the maxillary cast using a bite record that you took. And suddenly now you have the patient in an articulator. So so that's what the Facebook does. Does that make sense?
1: It does make sense. And uh, yeah, we've definitely worked through those exercises in school. So we've practiced mounting them on an, on a semi-adjustable articulator and everything. One thing that I take issue with, though, is that we go through all this trouble to get the record, the, bite rec- the maxillary record. But then what we're taught to do is to just hand articulate the mandible. Which to me it's like if any I don't it doesn't make sense to me that I would go through all this trouble to articulate the maxillary and then I would just kind of like articulate it where it kind of looks right for the mandible. But
0: there there is a good reason for that, right? So the best okay for most patients, not all patients, for best for for most patients, the best bite record actually is no bite record because when I have your models, for example, right, and uh, I, I squirt some, you know, silicon uh, VPS, you know, bite registration material on your teeth, and I get you to bite together, that silicon bite record has uh, some thickness, it has some shrinkage, it has some flex when you take it out, when you take it out, sometimes it deforms a little bit, right. And and then when you use that to, to put your models on, there is adding a little bit more one more layer of error in the equation. Whereas you, you get some study models together and sometimes you fit them together and they fit together beautifully. You know that, okay, this is the patient's bite. And so the beauty of that is you don't need the uh, the bite uh, record for that individual patient because their, their teeth are, are so well located that actually the, the no bite record is the best bite record because there's a one less thing that, that shrunk. There's one less thing that had an error. Where this doesn't work is when patients don't have a beautiful to fossil relationship, when they've got loads of flat amalgams, and they've got an AOB, because this, at the moment you start hand articulating that, the models almost don't fit together. You're kind of thinking, wait, how does this even fit together? So if that patient, you are merciless, you are at the mercy of the bite record, you need a bite record in, in that scenario. But for most, you know, well dentate people, young people, yeah, you don't need a bite record. And, 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 and there is actually more precision in that than using a bite record.
1: Okay. So the the true value as you mentioned in the in the Facebook transfer was kind of minimizing adjustments on the day of delivery for, you know, for indirect restorations. So beyond that, like, so if I'm doing a single crown, is that the only benefit I'm actually getting from this? It, like, or is it something to I know it's something to do with like the excursive movements are more accurate, definitely when we have a Facebook transfer. But just could you just touch on that just a little bit?
0: Yeah, so for a, a single crown, it's not worth the time. So the time that you do, you, you do it, for example, you know, four or five minutes, you are going to spend to get the face bow, to the expense of the silicon or the bite registration material, the technician making sure that, that nothing came loose in in the in that transit, the, the technician then carefully spending their time, their, their hard work and time to actually put it on a semi adjustable articulator, all for a single crown. And all that time that the dentist and the technician cumulatively spent, actually, it, you know, it, had you not used that Facebook and it was a minute adjustment or no adjustment to do with that single crown, then you didn't really save time, you just added one more layer of complexity to the scenario. So for a single crown, you don't need to use a Facebook because for a single crown, as long as they have the bite record, and if they have a nice bite record, or no record uh, of, of how the crown sits in the, in the patient's mouth, then the tap tap tap, they can check on the model with a shim with a shim stock on the model mm-hmm. to make sure that actually the crown is is happy in the bite. And the information that they use for the correct angulations of the the actual anatomy of the teeth is the adjacent teeth, right? The tooth Mm. behind, the tooth in front, uh, and the opposing tooth, they all tell you what the anatomy of the tooth should look like. And so um, with that information, you don't need to give this extra information of how the maxilla relates to the condyle, because uh, if we're just checking the tap, 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 and it's a non-guiding tooth, let's say a patient is canine-guided, and so uh, when they move left and right, they're not even guiding on that first molar crown that you're doing. So as long as you get the tap, tap, tap happy, and then generally the, the, the inclines of the teeth are similar to the tooth in front and the tooth behind, then it was a big waste of time doing that Facebook. Where a face bow becomes more critical is when you're doing, you know, more than two units, so three units, for example, okay, doing quadrant. And and now you don't have those references anymore of how how I should make those uh, inclines, for example. Uh, And so to have the movements on the articulator be a bit more similar to what the patient may have in their mouth, it might then therefore save you adjusting time and give you more uh, predictability in the, the correct shape and the angulations.
1: Okay, I have kind of two follow-up questions for that. When, when we're going with more units in a, in a quadrant, like you said, three or four units, would taking a pre-impression and pouring up that model help, uh, help them also kind of, you know, guess the angulations and so on that they could build those crowns in if we had a, a model poured up before we started doing any preparation?
0: Yeah, I've just reminded something that the, the, the other benefit just to mention the face bow is actually is really good for the occlusal cant. The occlusal cant is when the, the front teeth are just off to one side, like they can you know, go go down to the right, go down to the left. And so that maxillary cant, it's really good at giving that information because the, the patient might have a cant. But when you send the impression without a face bow to the technician, and they will just make it straight because Oh, yeah, the patient should be straight. So they'll make it straight. And now the entire patient on the articulator is was really different by several degrees to what the patient has in the mouth because the technician just deleted that can and made it straight on the on the model they 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 made it parallel to the worktop so that's the other benefit of the facebook by the way when you're doing aesthetic work it's nice to give that there's other ways stick bite and stuff around it but you know uh, when you're starting out i think it's good practice to use it to go see what the technician does with a facebook uh, and listen it's a skill that a lot of people have to relearn by going on expensive occlusion courses in the future so you might as well nail it now get some practice okay and it's a good thing to do now great question and and uh, The answer is yes and no, because quite often you are doing three crowns in a row because there's like a broken cusp... And there's like a huge MOD amalgam. there's a crack in the tooth. And so uh, when you're doing that many teeth, you have an opportunity to work with the technician to try and change a few things about, to try and get more ideal occlusion. You apply the textbook a little bit more here, cause you, you got a bit more wiggle room to do it a bit more. So therefore the pre-impression, it's not gonna be something that you're gonna be aspiring to as much. However, does it still give useful information to the lab? Yes, it does. The way I do it digitally in practice, I, I do a pre-prep scan. I scan the teeth how they are before I prep them. So yes, the technician can see what the teeth look like. So maybe if they're changing certain parameters, they can kind of get inspiration from what the teeth look like before. So that is a, a, a good way to do it. The other way is that if you've got like a, a broken a tooth with broken cusps, and what you can do is put some expired composite on that tooth. Don't no etch, no bond. You put some expired composite on the tooth. And then get the patient to chew, bite together, tap, 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 grind, 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 tap, 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 grind, 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 cure it. And now if you take an impression of that or scan it, now not only do you have an, a, an impression of the opposing tooth and, and and where that lands on it, but also with that by them grinding around, you now know the limits. You know You can't really make the new crown bigger than this because otherwise the opposing tooth is going to hit it. So it's a, it's a good, it's called a functionally generated path technique. And it's a really good way when, when you have a tricky case uh, and you want to, and you, and you don't have any anatomical landmarks in that tooth to use function, use the patient's opposing tooth and plus function to give some information to lab by the way of a, a pre-impression poured up or a scan that can send to lab. So the answer is yes, uh, sometimes it can be helpful, but sometimes you're doing it as a reference, but the technician will be using the textbook to try and get more idealized occlusion to what was there before.
1: Yeah. So, so using expired composite to kind of build up the tooth would almost be like having like an immediate wax up that then you could take Correct. a impression of. Correct.
0: Immediate yeah. functional wax up guided yeah. by the patient's own anatomy because the best articulator is the TMJ, which is why uh, my, 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 one of my buddies, Mahmoud Ibrahim, he loves face bows, articulators. I don't use them as much because what I what I tend to do is I'm, th- even I'm doing a bigger case. I'm going to get the temps on, but I'm going to now check all my adjustments as though my patient is the articulator, I'll get them to grind left or right, I will adjust, I will adjust, I will adjust, I will get the occlusion happy on the temporaries or the composites in the mouth and have that trial period, rather than laborsome getting it on the wax up. And then there is an error when you get it on from the wax up to the patient's mouth. But both both ways are valid. And I do think the beauty of using a face bone articulator and waxing up, it gives you great skill and practice of, of, of what teeth should look like, how teeth come together, what the excursion is like. I think it's a great thing to do if you're a student and you have the opportunity to, to do this kind of stuff. I still think it's really good to do because you understand a lot more about how the jaw moves, which can apply to adjustments on, on teeth in the future.
1: Yeah, that's really great. Another thing you kind of might have alluded to a little bit was I wanted to talk about how using a 3D scanner like what aspects of traditional impressions and Facebook transfer can a three D scanner replace or what is it not so good at? Because I remember listening to one of your episodes and you mentioned that sometimes there's an AI that kind of reads the wear facets on adjacent teeth and that can help it kind of analyze where the excursions would be. So can you can you talk about what it can do, what it's good at and what it's still not so good at um with regards to replacing the Facebook transfer?
0: You're a very good listener, Mohammed, I have to say. Very good. Um, I'm very impressed. Uh, so, uh, yeah. right. so, what it's good at is static like, you know, you, you, you've you done a two crown or two crowns, and you scan the opposing arch, the working arch, and get the patient to bite together. And because the patient has got lots of teeth and they've got a reproducible MIP, we're not anywhere near the central collation. We're not worrying about that because we're doing conformative dentistry. You get the patient to bite together. You make sure you've got enough clearance, occlusal clearance, enough space for that material that you're gonna use, Emacs or zirconia or whatever it might be. And then you scan it. And that static scan gets sent to the, the lab and they print the models. And so it's good at doing that. Some scanners do, but some scanners don't. So the iTero I, uh, I do, I don't think it does, at least if, if it does, I've, not been, I've been missed this function, basically. I know the TRIOS I used to use did. It doesn't send over the motion data to, to the lab. So it's, it gets, it's okay for static, but it doesn't give me the left and right excursions, whereas a TRIOS, uh, the, a certain TRIOS versions do. The best thing out there is something called a module, a module is this, this French company that make it, it essentially motion tracks the mandible. So they got these little like sensors on as like a camera. And the patient's like chewing gum, for example, and looking at these little sensors, it actually gives you the pure function, that data can be sent to the lab. And so when they're actually designing the, the, the crowns digitally, the digital wax ups, right? It's with the, the programming data of exactly how the patient functions and power functions. Whereas when we're using these AI algorithms, so essentially we, we, I send my scan to the lab, of the tap bite together only and then the computer has to do some work it looks the, the way that the opposing teeth that we haven't prepped how they look and it guesstimates okay i think this is how the jaw moves and now i'm going to put this anatomy on, on the the crowns that we're doing which roughly matches the orientation and the angulations uh, and so it's, it's really cool that we can do that now sometimes you're doing a bigger case and you're mixing the two together you're getting the digital models but then you're also supplementing it with an analog face the other way to do that digitally would be just take really good photos. If you get really good photos of the patient standing, uh, standing nice and straight, you got uh, retractors inside and, you, and they're moving their lips out of the way. So now you see the plane of the teeth and behind you is like like a nice, like, you know, for example, uh, blinds, like something that's really horizontal a reference point. Then, and then you get some from the side as well. Then the the, the the technician on the on the digital software can just tweak and, t- and tinker and, and kind of create that face bow effect. Within a digital articulator, so I think the if you know if you're kind of doing full mouth dentistry all day every day, you're a prosthodontist, and something like a module is amazing. But for what us humble general dentists are doing, is we're doing the best we can with what we have. So a scan will get that static for most people, uh, and then we're relying a lot on the other information from the teeth, the wear sets on the teeth, the anatomy and the inclines on the teeth, or the AI algorithms if you're using a digital technician to work out the occlusion.
1: Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Do you think that maybe the AI algorithms, as they get better, will maybe be able to make the whole process much more simple, so you can just take two full arch scans and a bite record, and that's all we'd need? I th- I think so.
0: I think one day it will. Uh, but I think with without that motion data of exactly how the teeth come together, because you know, there's a whole thing about you know, there's rats and cows, right? Some people chew very vertical. They go up and down. Some people move, swing their mandible uh, wide. uh, And so that will affect what your cusp or inclines will be like. And also to, to know how the patient power functions. So what I mean by that is when you are checking the occlusion on your composite or your crown, you get the patient to bite together and you get the patient to grind left and right on your articulating paper. That is not checking function. We don't we don't chew when we're chewing food. We don't bite together all the way and then grind left and right. Right, that's not how we chew our food. We we're kind of swinging our jaw in into the home position, and, and that's function. So what we're checking for when we're doing that grind left, grind right is parafunction. We're checking, okay, if the patient grinds their teeth at night, for example, which way is, are, are, is the mandible moving and which teeth are touching. And then we get the wear sets to match up, then we know, okay, this is how the patient parafunctions. And it's really important that our restorations are in harmony of that. Otherwise, you get more D you get more chipping, you get more flexure, and, and, you, and you're going to get more failure.
1: Yeah, makes sense. One thing that I kind of wanted to ask as well. So we mentioned about checking the occlusion beforehand and kind of keeping a mental image of that. But when would you say that it's actually necessary to to get an, an occlusal diagnosis for a patient? I've heard that term be thrown around before. I don't really know exactly what it means or what uh, what it means to somebody when it comes to daily dentistry like what 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 would occlusal diagnosis really do for me if i'm doing single tooth or quadrant dentists, dentistry
0: i think this will hurt a lot of people do the, the, occlu- the real occlusion gurus out there i think it'll hurt a lot of people but i agree with you like i think i think there's a lot of stuff that you know people we get told to record which is actually not adding any value to what you're going to be doing and i think if we boil it down to the, the the bare basics. If you have primary disease, then really we want to get, get in there, prevention, you know, change their habits, change the diet, restore, get the seals that we need, okay, on these, let's say, direct restorations or temporary crowns, and just get the patient good enough that they can still eat their sandwiches and eat their food and stuff, because we're not, we're not really there to 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 change the bite just yet. We're not doing complex stuff, because we're still in that stabilization phase. And so it's often in the stabilisation phase where you're just putting out fires. Now, sometimes you enter the realm of occlusal disease, which is not a great term, and we'll come on to why that's not a great term at the end. But if you have someone who who the whole reason why their dentition is destroyed is down to the occlusion and you know, severe wear and that kind of stuff, and nothing to do with the caries, well then yes it becomes more of a big deal to make sure that we get all our uh, occlusal diagnoses before we embark on this case, because this case will probably need opening the vertical dimension and therefore it's become a lot more complex. But if you are serving your patient by just doing a few restorations and otherwise bite that seems to be working for the patient, you don't need to go overboard in in the things that are recorded. Would it be helpful if I just read through some of the things I have in my basic occlusal examination form that I, I do for my patients?
1: Yeah, I think that would be extremely helpful. Yeah, sure.
0: Okay, so history wise, uh, I would want to know about um, any history of uh, joint noises, clicking and popping. Because what you'll find is, that, especially when you do rubber dam dentistry is you start doing your dentistry and then they're there for like an you know, hour and a half, couple of hours. And then at the end, you find that they're not able to close their mouth together as they were before, or, or, or they're getting severe pain and aches because their muscles are on fire. And you want to know all these things. Before you start, the other classic one we see is um, oh, I didn't have a click before you did the filling. But actually, they always had the click, but they just weren't aware of it. And because they had an acute episode of pain, they started to focus on their click. And so, having just a bit, you know, it takes few seconds just to put your fingers by the, the condyle and get them to open, close, open, close and, and figure out if there's a click or not. So these are, I think, I don't think it's too much to ask for just to get a basic uh, joint diagnosis in terms of is there a displacement, you click or, or, or not? Is there any history of, you know, locking, popping, joint noises that we just create as a baseline and it may not, it's not going to change which composite you use, it's not going to change uh, exactly the dots or what you're doing with your restorations, but it's patient management as a whole to make sure it avoids trouble. And you identify those patients that perhaps, even though it's simple dentistry, you may want to refer this patient because actually, they, 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 every time they have a restoration, they, they have this terrible jaw ache, uh, they, they have clicking, popping, their bite never settles. And so why you know, why should we treat that patient? And really, a prosthodontist may be, uh, be better serving that patient by seeing this, for, for example. I also want to know about uh, any history of locking, because the difference between just a, a click as a sound, Versus locking is huge. Locking is well when they can they can't open anymore, right? Like there's a catch, the disc is out of position, they, they can't open anymore. And so that is a very unstable situation, especially if it's like they lock and then they unlock and then they lock and they unlock. And that's linked to lots of degenerative changes of the condyle. So I want to know what I'm up against, because I do not want to do any comprehensive density. I don't want to do more than a single unit. I don't want to do more than st- stage one, you know, extirpations, extractions and, 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 and fighting the caries on someone who's got a joint like that. I'd rather Mm. get that joint healthy first. So it really depends on where you are on that ladder with that patient. If it's like fighting fires, then yeah, whatever joint set is they have you accept it and you do the best for the patient. But once you have got them stable, and you want to serve them better, you need to make sure you don't jump in without knowing all these things. Sure, I'm wondering about uh, the pain from the jaw, uh, headaches, migraines. Because again, it's one of those things that if someone is a headachey person, migrainey person, it's linked to them not having um, uh, a great adaptive capacity. How how well can they adapt, basically? And so, with, even within the TMD realms, one of the 12, 13 diagnoses you can make within TMD is a TMD headache. So it's relevant, and and people are thinking, well, again, it's not going to affect the the crown that you're doing in the lower first molar. It's not, but it literally takes, you know. 10 seconds to ask and if usually answers no, you just move on. Only if it's like, yes, they're headachey, and they get pain through the jaw. And they used to have locking that, that paints a different picture of a, of a patient So it's, uh, sometimes it's not the information in isolation. It's information mm. all together that you must consider. So this is very quick and easy thing just to to find out at uh, change in bite, like I totally want to know if the patient is has, has reported a change in their bite, because I so don't that- want to be that dentist who's placed a crown or done the filling. And they come back and they say, Oh yeah, I can't find my bite anymore. My bite keeps changing. Thankfully, these patients are not very common. Most patients, they got a nice stable MIP, maximum intercuspal position, and we don't need to worry about it. But in the one in you know three in hundred that have this issue, you want to know about it. It's so easy just to ask, have you ever noticed a change in a bite? Most patients are like, no. And it's so easy to ask. a lot of these things it might seem like, well, it's too much detail, but it's it's very, very quick. Awareness of bruxism, and it's the question to ask is, you don't ask, do you grind your teeth? Because they're always gonna say no, right? No one's aware of it. So that, are you aware if you grind your teeth? So either they say yes, I'm aware or no. But all they've said at that point is I'm not aware of it. It's for you at that point to make a judgment call by doing your uh, grind scene investigation in the mouth to see okay, are there wear for sets present? Do they match up? And therefore you they are a probable bruxis, basically different di- diagnosis level. So to, just finding out, hey, are you aware if you grind your teeth or clench your teeth? And then just write what they say. Very, very simple, basically. And have teeth shortened or discolored over time. So I want to know, are we dealing with someone who's aware that their teeth are wearing away? So that's like the history. Extraorally, all I want to know is the size of the masters, right? This is something I didn't do for, for many years until after I qualified. You know, before I, I get, t- I got taught an extra oral exam, I checked the lymph nodes, I checked the masters, but I wasn't really sure what I was feeling. But if you get the patient to bite together and clench, you will feel a huge difference in your patients. Some patients have got like a a nice, normal muscle contractions and other patients, when they bite down, there's like these two huge golf balls coming out of their jaw. Those patients are going to generate a lot more force. And that may influence the type of material I may use. That might influence how much occlusal reduction I do for that tooth. That might influence whether or not I think they may need an occlusal appliance afterwards. And if they done a fair bit of expensive work, and I know that they're going to be uh, chewed up by, by, the, by the patient, that is, is worthwhile considering. So their occlusal risk, that occlusal force is informed by the size of the master. Same with the TMJ. I'm just feeling for is there any tenderness? Just palpate. is there any tenderness? Uh, clicking we already discussed. But in the history, but now you just get to check for yourself. Open close. Most patients nice and smooth. There's no major sort of deviations, deflections. The jaw's not moving in funny ways because in that five out of a hundred patient that has these funny jaw movements, do you really want to treat that patient? And and one of the things I really stand for is feed the specialists feed them right let them don't let them go hungry okay because to cherry pick as a gen, you know our job as a general dental practitioner is so tricky mohammed like i don't know if you've got a specialty in your mind that you want to do in the future but being a gdp is so difficult because you have to literally be a jack of all trades right so it's mm-hmm. one of the best bits of advice i can give to any dental student is it's completely okay to cherry pick it's completely okay to refer, refer the ones that you don't like or you don't want, you're not interested in and live a happy life. Go to Disneyland with your kids, not have to worry about all these kind of patients, right? Whereas if you keep saying yes to everyone and you don't have like an inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria, you're going to really struggle because you get all these curveball sense. So so back, back on task, if a patient opens and they have to move their jaw in all these funny positions when they open, then maybe you don't want to be doing a crown on that patient. Because there's other 99 patients waiting for your crown that don't have a funny jaw that you might not exacerbate, that you might not mess up, unless you're really confident in, in, in that area of dentistry. Does that make sense?
1: It does make sense. All, all of these, uh, these kind of diagnostic questions are also, in a way, you're using them as a screener to decide whether this patient is really somebody you want to be treating in your practice, essentially. And if, and if there is enough red flags, then it's, it's most likely somebody that you would have to boot off to a specialist.
0: That's it. So you know, s- simple dentistry on a complex patient is still complex, right? So a simple dentistry in a complex patient is still complex. So uh, knowing all these things, and again, did it take a long time in your basic checkup to just check, get the, get, you know, get them to open up and close? It didn't take very long to do that. Uh, and so all I want to know at that point is mouth opening. Can they get three of their fingers in vertically into their mouth? If they can get three fingers in, I'm happy to do a molar root canal. I'm happy to do a molar crown. If they can't get their three fingers in, that molar root canal they need. That's going to the endodontist, right? Because they are so much more skilled than I am, and they'll do a much better, faster job. And the whole reason why they can't even open three fingers means that okay, maybe they've got a TMJ kind of history, muscular history that you don't want to be the one who exacerbates that by having them, you know, open their mouth for so long. So basic thing there: do they pass it? Do they fail it? Uh, And then intraorally, do they have cheek ridging? Do they have tongue scalloping? Lingual tori? These things are are weakly associated with with the uh, bruxism. We're looking for wear facets, right? These shiny areas of teeth, flat areas. Remember. If it looks like a dentist has gone in with a burr and gone, then it's probably the patient, you know, chewing up their own teeth. And you want to be aware what you're up against, right? You want to know about these wear sets. So the more wear sets they have, the more it feeds into the fact that, okay, they may be a bruxist, and therefore that changes the occlusal risk that you have for the patient. You want to make sure that the crown that you put respects the pathway of the way the jaw wants to move because bruxism is a behavior. It's a muscle movement. You don't want to make sure that you, you put your restoration in the firing line. Before it was flat and now you've given it this extra length. The patient's just going to exhibit that behavior again and break it. So you want to make sure that you conform. So uh, it's much easier to treat a patient who doesn't have much attrition than to treat a patient with significant attrition because you're just at way less risk treating someone with less attrition. So just noting these things are, are very important. Uh, and lastly, just knowing are they class one? Are they class two? Are they class three? What is their over, overbite percentage? And you can just get this from a photo, right? This, these are basic records that you do, because at the end, if something ch- changes in the bite, which happens very rarely, you know, 1%, 2%, or, or, or less even, you have something to fall back on. Is it really asking for too much? If you record in the notes, that they class one, class two, what their overbite is, I think this is just basic checkup, right? Uh, and, and then just checking their occluding scheme. Are they group function? Are they canine guided? Simple thing to note: get the patient to bite together. And, and a top tip here for students is don't just get them to, you know, grind left and right. Get them to grind hard and go left and right. What you thought was a canine guidance might actually be a group function right because you know if they're doing it in their sleep they might they might be doing it really really hard and so so check it when they're clenching as well and the reason why that's relevant mohammed is if you're going to be doing a premolar restoration and it's going on to the buckle incline a bit and you know the patient's uh, group, group function then you know that you're dealing with a guiding tooth and so now you want to conform to the dot but maybe you also want to think about conforming to the line or making a judicious decision That actually, I'm. I'm This tooth is a very weakened tooth. I'm going to choose to keep this line out of the occlusion. I.e., I'm happy for the other teeth to to take that excursive movement, but I don't want this tooth that's just had a root canal and it's got a crack to have that excursion. But you wouldn't have known that had you checked beforehand.
1: Yeah, I think all of those questions make a ton of sense as screeners to kind of. Give us a starting base of knowledge of the patient's occlusion that'll help us make informed treatment decisions as we're doing our dentistry. Jazz, I've really enjoyed having you on. I did have more questions, but it seems like maybe we'll have to do uh, another episode sometime. To, yeah, to talk about a little bit more complex things. But it was uh, it was really a pleasure having you on. This was my first really nitty gritty clinical episode on the Very Dental Student podcast. And hopefully, there will be more coming. So yeah, it's it's been a pleasure. I've learned a lot for sure. And I hope the listeners have as well. Is there anything you'd like to close with any any remarks?
0: I, I think you guys are in a wonderful position. Remember that dentistry is this, is his career that there's so much doom and gloom out there but remember that we are in a, in a fantastic profession that's always changing and that's a good thing. There's so many technological advancements happening and to embrace it and to not get overwhelmed by all, the, all all the stuff that we see on Instagram on social media and this feeling that you're inadequate that you need to catch up and stuff. If you go at your own pace and you serve your patients well and you look after them uh, and you go for that CE or you go for the extra knowledge, because then school is like a, a license, right? It's like a, a driving license. You only really learn how to drive after you get the license. So don't get don't beat yourself up over this fact, but enjoy the den school experience while you have it. But remember that that's the the one chapter closed and then a new chapter of continual learning and improving and refining all those things that you perhaps didn't understand the first time around at den school. And there's no shame in admitting that.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much jazz for all of the all of the information you've been willing to share. And uh, to the listeners, we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.
0: Well, there we have it, guys. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end of this Ask Jazz. If you found this helpful, please do send it to a colleague who may have an occlusal itch that needs scratching. We also have a whole bank of questions that you guys send in, so please keep it up. You know, write it in the comments or send to us on Instagram on at Protrusive Dental. It's always nice to read your questions, but also your reflections on the episodes. And generally just a chit-chat on Instagram. We've actually got a lot of questions from you guys that we've collected, but if you have any more questions, please do comment below if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening, maybe on Spotify, Apple. Thanks so much for for being a loyal audio listener. Feel free to reach out on Instagram once again. It would be really great to connect and have your questions via a direct message so we can tackle those nitty-gritty details that you want covering. The producer for this episode was Erica Alan Benitez. The CPD lead so even though it's a students episode there is no CPD for students but those uh, premium members they can still uh, answer the quizzes and get 45 minutes of CPD for this episode via the usual route on protrusive.app and so Marie thanks for sorting out the certification and the premium notes were done by Emma Hutchinson who's part of team protrusive. Thanks so much and I'll catch you same time same place next week.